Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Baseball America Podcast. Coming to you from the Baseball America Podcast Nook. Controls your throwing strikes. The command is you're hitting the spot. That's yeah. stupid. I'm sorry. I'm going to rant about this again because that's just stupid, John. It is I mean, stupid. This is, this is so ridiculous. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. If he was in the home run derby, I'd put him out of the decent chance of winning it against the big leaders. Surprised you could even hear us over the din of Ronnie McCabe's tape gun. Here we go in three, two, one. Play ball. Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast. I'm John Manuel, joined by J.J. Cooper, and for the first time in a long time, my old podcast partner, Will Lingo. Will, welcome back to the podcast. I guess history brings you back to the podcast, Nook, eh? It's great to be here. Uh, Yes, we made draft history way back when, when we did the first draft broadcast on MLB radio when B.J. Upton was the the highlight player in the draft, although not the number one pick. Yep. Um. And now draft history again with the first time in our tenure at Baseball America, which is amazing. The first time a number one pick has not signed, and we certainly didn't see it coming yesterday, I don't think. You'd have to combine our 38 years at BA (laughs) to reach back and get back to Tim Belcher in 1983, the last time the first overall pick did not sign, and Danny Goodwin in 1971, the other time it didn't happen. JJ, you weren't in the office for yesterday because you've been under the weather, but... I mean, like, we were all just kind of like 5 o'clock came and went, and that we was 5.05. We were just waiting for confirmation. If, I think it was at 5.15 when I finally got a text message saying, these three guys aren't signing. And it was referring to the three high school pitchers the Astros were trying to get. Just what was your initial reaction, J.J., when you found out, when you saw on Twitter that the Astros had blown this? Uh, the, the first thought I had was is that you you can't – let this happen over effectively $1.5 million. Yep. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, I, it's funny, reading responses afterwards on Twitter and, and elsewhere, you know, it, it very quickly falls into, uh, I think the general view is, is man, the Astros really blew that. And then if you are the, uh, you know, if you're an Astros fan who's, who's truly kind of, uh, uh, you know, is, is supporting your team no matter what, it very quickly became, man, Brady Aiken is, is, is so greedy to turn down $5 million. I didn't see too much of that. I saw that's gutsy or maybe not smart for a high school kid to turn down $5 million. I didn't really see much of the greedy part because I think there's an understanding that this guy was kind of, even the Astros fans, that this guy was kind of getting worked over by the organization a little bit. We saw bit. a little no. bit of that in our no. Facebook comments and Twitter comments from people who were saying that he was greedy and sort of, you know, comparing him to Matt Harrington, good luck in semi-pro ball, people who don't really understand it. You really have to look beyond the money in these kinds of things because the money is beyond what most people will ever be able to comprehend. It's, like you said, you have to get this done. 
And, and but but really, what it comes down to, I mean, there's no other way to put it, is that it didn't come down to a. I, I again, I you know, we don't have we we have not talked to Brady Aiken or Brady you know Brady Aiken's parents about this or anything, but it did not come down to a evaluation of is do I have more ability to get five million? You know, can I do that again? That whatever. It really came down to that on one side you had a, a player who says we had a deal at six point five million, and on the other side you had a team who said that deal fall, falls apart because we don't think that this physical shows that you're fully healthy long term. There's more risk. It showed but, more more risk perhaps, but they never made the case that he was injured. Right, that's a not pretty... not he's injured, but there's more risk. But even though though if, if you did it that way. The way they did it, they did not do this where it was, let's come together and work this out. It was, we think this, okay, so we're going to offer you the minimum that we have to. And then on the last day, they went up. And our that. real number is $1.5 million less than what we originally offered you, which just happens to be enough to allow us to sign these other guys. That's where it does not pass the smell test. Right, and that's, and the fact that when you really reconstruct it, that the Astros, as soon as Brady Aiken's physical happened, and there was this, okay, he's in town to sign, and then it didn't happen. As soon as that happened, they reengaged on the 21st round pick, Mac Marshall, and made strong efforts to, to sign him, instead of their focus being, let's sign Brady Aiken. Let's fix this situation. It seems like their focus, if their focus had been, Brady Aiken centric, they would have gotten Brady Aiken and Jacob Nix. Whether they still could have gotten Mac Marshall or not, we don't know. It is pretty clear under this new CBA, which is broken, and this uh, really exposed the problems in the CBA, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But to me, it's been pretty clear to both of you guys if the player wants to play pro ball, they usually sign. They will sign for less than what their stated number is. We've seen guys who threw out big six-figure bonuses, even seven-figure bonus numbers, who wound up signing like in later rounds for one hundred fifty thousand dollars after they had a bad spring or whatever. We, players are signing under this under this uh, CBA for what, less money. And what teams have learned from the new system also is you have to sign your guys in the first ten rounds. Yep, especially the guys at the very top, especially your first rounder, and especially the number one pick. Yeah, the one with the seven point nine million dollar seven point nine million dollars to your budget. If you lose that, it torpedoes your entire draft, which which it did. It's going to be very difficult for the Astros to have a, a good draft here. Uh, but I, I guess the so the point so the first point I guess I would want to debate JJ or argue with you about since we've done this <laughs> before is I mean just how devastating is this for the Astros and if. So they get a compensatory pick next year. So they'll pick second next year because they did make the minimum offer. But should Jeff Luno be the guy who makes that pick? This was the third year in a row the Astros picked first overall. They could pick first and second overall next year. They probably want to now. They probably want to tank even more. What's the point? And uh, should Jeff Luno be the guy to make that pick? They've had the first pick overall three years in a row. The first year in 2012, their master plan worked. They got Carlos Correa below slot, and they spent extra money and got Lance McCullers Jr. and Rio Ruiz. That said, they did not get the best player in that draft. I think the industry is pretty much 30 for 30 organizations would prefer Buxton to Correa. So they didn't get Byron Buxton went second. They took Carlos Correa first. 
2013, they took Mark Appel, clearly not the best player in that draft class. If you're taking a college senior first overall, you don't want him with a 10 ERA in the Cal League a year later. You would rather have Chris Bryant and his 33 home runs leading the minor leagues who went uh, to the Cubs second overall. And now this year, not only did they, whether they drafted the best player in the draft class or not, they certainly didn't get him. So they're going to be one for three on number one overall picks. The history of the draft shows just how much more value that top pick has. The Astros are certainly aware of this. They know the algorithms better than anybody. So now they're one for three on this. If you're Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros, and you present this to Jeff Luno and say to him, prove to me that you deserve to be the person to execute this high draft pick again next year when you're one for three, what's the, what's the, why would you have faith that Jeff Luno's the guy to do that? Okay. Like I said, we're, we're trying to do an artist. I'll give the counter argument. The counter argument is, is that this, okay, they, not the two years, the Carlos Correa pick, you can say they didn't get the best player. They but, didn't. But that is within the degree of they got, okay, a guy who I believe we had number three in our midseason prospect report. You know, so they got a guy, a shortstop, who, and they could use a shortstop. They got a shortstop who is considered one of the absolute top players, prospects in the game. That's so their one. I that, gave them, I said they're one yeah, for three. That's a, so that's that's a, that's their a one. check mark. I'm even last giving you Carlos Correa. Last year is. Is a disaster. It's a disaster. There's no because it's a disaster because it's not just okay. Mark Appel, at this point, to say that there's not you know that well he's you know pitching in Lancaster and he has some injury problems. I'm sorry, no, that's not enough. For one, Mark Appel wasn't good in the Midwest. Was not very good in the Midwest League last year. We wrote about it in September of last year before he ever got to Lancaster of multiple pro scouts saying. You know, this guy's not what I expected to see. And he's just gotten worse this year. And the thing about it is, is yes, Lancaster's tough to pitch in. But every other pitcher on that staff is pitching better than Mark Appel. Every single one. And it's almost, so, at this point, it's almost like the Astros have him pitching there, getting his brains beat out on purpose to try to toughen him up. Because the perception in the industry is that this is a guy who is not tough. Uh, the word soft gets thrown mm-hmm. around with scouts, media, all the time with Mark Appel. And there are not a lot of plaudits out there for his makeup in terms of uh, responding to uh, adversity. And it's all, I can't think of another reason why the Astros would keep sending him out in Lancaster because it just seems extremely counterproductive unless you're purposefully trying to toughen him up. I can't think of another reason. Can you think of another reason why they have him in Lancaster, getting his brains beat out? Every the only start. other one I can the only one I can one I can give you is is that the other options aren't very good either. Okay, one you could promote him to Double A. Well, why well, not send kind him of down? But hold on, I'll get there. Okay. <laughs> what message would you send if you promoted a guy who's the worst pitcher on the team to Double A and tell like Josh Hader who's been shoving every time out? Yeah, yeah, you're not ready for that. Yeah. By the way, the guy who has a ten ERA, he is. You know, that's actually from a dynamic standpoint, team dynamic standpoint, that's pretty tough. Yep. You could send them down to the Midwest League, but you've got some risk if you do that. As long as he's in Lancaster, at least you can try to convince him that part of it is Lancaster. What happens if he goes to Quad Cities and gets beat up there? There is no excuse, none, for a four-year college guy in his second pro year going to the Midwest League and getting you know beat up. Is there? No. 
The other thing you could do is Roy Halliday style, send the guy way down where you're just saying, we're going to start rebuilding you from the ground up. Right. But uh, that's okay. None of this so, is feeding look, into your Jeff Lunau counter argument. Though, correct. Right. So, let's, so let's just say, let, but, but go, be, go beyond that. Tony Kemp's had a very good year this year. You know, Tony Kemp looks like a, a good pick, but Andrew Thurman has been bad. Ken Emanuel hasn't been very good. There doesn't look like there's a lot coming out of that draft from, from last year for the Astros. Yeah, so I'm saying that, that's an argument against it. When Tony Kemp is the best player in your draft class when you're picking 1-1, one, one, that's not good unless you're Aaron Fitt. No, that's, that's not. But as far as this year, I I'm because I can't defend, how, again, to me, in the end, the $1.5 million it is dumb to let all this fall apart over $1.5 million. Yes. It is. Because in the end, if you said, even if you are concerned about his elbow, you're, you're still looking at, if you are willing to give him $5 million, you have decided that there is at least some possibility that the elbow is not going to be a, a massive issue. Because right. if you think that the elbow means that there's no way that this guy is going to be a uh, a solid big league pitcher. If you think it's an you're offering up the bare style, minimum, man. and you're not going up from it. Right. I mean, all the guys I think of, like this, I'm sure there have been more recent ones, but all the guys I think of wound up in the big leagues who had their bonuses reduced. Whether it was R. A. Dickey, I mean, obviously that's a different story. He became a knuckleballer, but Billy Traber, he wound up in the big leagues, but it was a fringy career. He had his first round bonus reduced. Tim Stoffer had a shoulder problem. Mm-hmm. He still has been. <laughs> This is another gallows humor. He's still one of the top 10 first-round picks in Padres history. <laughs> At least in the last 15 years, he's certainly in the top five. He might be in the top three of first-round picks in Padres history. And that's after a shoulder reconstruction. So uh, the point is, you made my point for me, JJ. They're one for three. But, 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 the, 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 but the point I was going to make, though, is just that at the same time, you just also hit on it that if I'm Jeff Lunau, the argument I'm making is, is that we are a victim of a broken system, which is we've seen, this, we've seen this before. We saw this with the Brewers a couple of years ago with Dylan Covey, where in a, that was in a different system. Right. That, but but the, the, the problem with the system is, is that you can't get good medical reports. You can't be confident of medicals because they're amateurs. And they have options going forward. Incorrect. You can't necessarily they, be confident of medicals. Did they not give an MRI before the draft? He did not. Our information is that the, uh, Brady Aiken and that Casey Close and Excel Sports Management advising Brady Aiken did not have an MRI before the draft. And they were as surprised by the findings as the Astros were. And that's what leads to a lack of preparation. So that's what leads to miscommunication. Whereas there are other players involved here, such as Carlos Rodon, who did have a pre-draft MRI. That was clean. The arm was clean. But the Astros couldn't compel him to do that before the draft. No. They couldn't compel him, but they picked first. They had a choice. They chose to take the guy that they had less medical information about than the guy who they had an MRI for. That's well, that's their choice. They went into it eyes open. They're picking first overall. And... That mistake, to me, goes squarely on the Jeff Luno side of the ledger if you're Jim Crane and you're evaluating who do you want making that choice to start the 2015 draft. 
Like now, I think it also reflects poorly on the Aiken side and his representatives that they were surprised by that finding. So that's the pro- that's that's why you saw a guy in Casey Close who's very rarely quoted, who does not who does not play things publicly as an agent compared to the Boris Corporation. Scott's very public and very willing to talk. He doesn't negotiate necessarily in public sometimes, but he's very willing to talk to the media and let you know what he thinks about everything. But Casey Close doesn't do that, and that's why it was just stunner when you saw that Ken Rosenthal story a week and a half ago. I think it's because Casey was unprepared for the MRI. I don't know another way to put it. And he was surprised that the Astros were playing the system like this. So I would say to say they're victims of this system, J.J.'s incorrect. I think they tried to manipulate the system because they did it in 2012 with success with Carlos Correa. And they tried to run from that playbook again. And Casey Close, for lack of a better thing that pops in my head, basically said, homie, don't play that. You cannot do that to my clients. And as a result, his clients lost out on more than $6 million. Uh, The thing is, they were playing, they were using the Carlos Correa playbook correctly, the same way, basically, by getting him to sign for six and a half. Right. Even that's enough. And they were getting up saving a million and a half dollars, which they could use for other picks. It's when they tried to take that additional million and a half that things fell apart. And to me, I I agree with you. The, The Ken Rosenthal story, where Casey Close was quoted, by name, blasting almost as shocking as the fact that Aiken ended up not signing at all. Just to see that dirty laundry aired publicly is was pretty shocking. And it rose to the level where the Players Association right spoke out about the draft. And as people have made the point before, and they're right, the union has sold out player members who are not in the union, whether it's minor leaguers or draft picks. This is a bigger podcast and a bigger story. But the union, so, I mean, like, it's just unconscionable how little money minor league players make. And it's ridiculous how draft player rights were sold out. But I, I oh, would just say... Well, I, I mean, that, that's one thing we've got to jump in here. Here's the thing. It's not going to happen. Because, for one, I'll be interested to see the Player Association making noise about filing grievances at all. Do they even have standing in this case? Because these are not members of the union. I, I don't they know have, if they do, JJ. I do not see how the union could... Uh, in a court, maybe in an arbitration case, because they've already bargained these players' rights away. Uh, but yeah, I, they don't. Not only that, have... they have established that the only tie that they have to the draft, the only tie they have, is because it's tied to free agents. Right. Otherwise, the they have come out and said MLB could do whatever they want with the draft. If they took the compensatory part out of the draft, MLB can change it in any way they want because these are not people who are part of the union. But the the thing that happens here though is is that. If Brady Aiken, you know, questionable MRI or not, was declared a free agent tomorrow, Brady Aiken would make at least three to four times more on a contract than what the Astros originally offered him. Like more like, I, I think it would be more like five times. And I really think that he would get more than $30 million. I really think if I, he were a free agent, he would get a, he's not as good as a role as Chapman. But he would get something in the Chapman range. If you had a free agent, eight, if you had a free agent, eighteen-year-old left-hander, even with the medical, I think he'd get a ton. I think he'd get well north of twenty million dollars. I think he'd get more than north of thirty. I mean, Jacob Nix would get what Aiken turned out. More than likely, more than likely. I mean, when the guys were free agents eighteen years ago, will we saw Matt White? 
got $10 million, $10.2 million specifically. Brady Aiken's similar with a longer track record or a similar track record. He's left-handed. And he's from San Diego, not and Pennsylvania. And the inflation since then is pretty significant. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see well, but how no, it happen. Been... But that's, that's never going to happen. I so. agree. It's never, never going to happen. But like, I, the one example I'll give that is, is look at what, like, what Noel Arguez got. <laughs> yeah. As, you know, the thing uh, we can talk lefty... about that could happen out of this is possibly some sort of collective medical information before the draft. Uh, I think a medical combine, and I do think that what the, the unex, every time Major League Baseball tries to establish rules for the draft to hold down signing bonuses, there are unintended consequences. That happens every time. And the unintended consequence of this CBA has been for teams to try to hold the top players' bonuses down even more so they can sign other players later. They, and in this case, that led to the motivation of exploiting a medical issue to try to do that. And that's the unintended consequence. There is motivation for a team to try to find something in that medical exam, in that physical, to ding the player's bonus. And it appears that, that is what happened. There happens. is a benefit to them. Absolutely. There is, a, there is motivation for a team to find something wrong in that physical and sign that player for less it gives them a chance to sign more players. And that it's inescapable that that's what the Astros tried to do here. And, and no, they, no, no. Well, okay, I won't say it's inescapable. That is a very logical reconstruction of the events. You could also make the argument that they decided that Brady Aiken, because of his elbow, was not worth to them $6.5 million. However... He was worth five. They could have made the assessment he was worth five million because at five million, it's the difference between getting Aiken, Nix, and Marshall compared to getting none of them, and therefore that they decided he was worth five million. Now, again, all, that's getting the motives that we don't know the answer to. But you could make the argument that it was that they made a cold calculating uh, decision <laughs> that at five million it was worth it. A bad decision but, is what they made. Yeah, I, th- I think. Whatever the motivation behind it was, they had to have realized, let's just say at the moment the Ken Rosenthal story came out, I'm sure they realized it before, they had to realize that this was not going to work the way they envisioned it. And at that point, you have to bail out on that plan. You have to get the number one guy signed. As we know, depth, you know, doing a top 30 in a prospect handbook, depth is nice. Star power is what wins you games. And that brings me back to the evaluation, again, that the ownership, in my mind, has to make of Jeff Luno. And is he the guy to make the Astros a championship franchise? And, I mean, he's clearly the guy to help you get the cover of Sports Illustrated and get a big story like that and to get a highly ranked farm system. But is he the guy that's going to turn this around? If I were the owner... And he had three shots at the number one overall pick, and he blew two of them. I would look elsewhere for someone to make that pick. So I'm just I'm just reaching that as a cold, logical conclusion. This isn't personal, but looking at it, he's had three chances. He's one for three. That might be good enough if he were George Springer, but I don't think it's good enough at the number one pick in the draft. And I wouldn't let him make that choice. And the process here, one other aspect of this process, I think it shows frankly, a little lack of feel to conduct these negotiations from Mexico. Jeff Luna was not in Houston. He was in Mexico, visiting family. It's where he's from. And 
How can you not be there with your owner when the situation is this serious? As it, it seems like the owner wasn't engaged in it either. He was not. Okay. And this is a week and a half ago. The, the Rosenthal story came out and the, the stuff hit the fan. I just think it shows a little lack of feel, if not some arrogance, J.J., for Jeff Luno to not be there with the ownership and to be doing this. <laughs> I mean, I know it's 2014, but our call just dropped a few minutes ago. and We had to do this over again. What if the call drops? And then, you know, the bottom line is he didn't get it done. So I think you could pretty much question almost every part of the process for Jeff Luna. So, again, you can go scoreboard and results. The results aren't good. But I think the process is also a flawed process. I think it shows a little bit of flippancy and a little lack of feel to do this and not have the owner involved and not have other people involved. It's all you and, you know, good thing. Hope that everything works from Mexico as opposed to being in your own ballpark and at home and having your owner involved where the owner finds out when the Houston Chronicle calls him. Well, I, I do think, again, the the part that to me is the most puzzling about this is that we had, the, the minute the Rosenthal story comes out, it is established that we are talking about a very uh, broken situation here. Yeah. Because at that point, you have the Astros on one side saying, there are significant concerns here. You have Aiken's you know, side basically saying, look, he can go out and throw 97 today. He's healthy. Okay, there's a difference of opinion there. There's a disagreement. That's fine. More importantly, though, you have the Astros saying, yes, you had a $6.5 million deal. Right now, the standing offer on the table for you is the bare minimum we have to offer you so that we will get the compensatory pick. That, to me, and that was finally changed on the day of the deadline. Right. To, to me, if you say where the biggest screw-up here happened, I know that you're going to give your best offer at the absolute last minute to the deadline. I understand all that. But the fact that the offer did not go up until the deadline day which by all accounts, that's what we've been given, is that there was essentially three attempts to contact were made on deadline day. Right. And the, and the number went up from the minimum to a higher and then to the last minute, you know, the last minute $5 million offer. But there was no real, that means that there was no real significant attempt to mend the breach in between. I agree with you completely. Yep. It does seem like at the end, the Aiken camp had either completely become disgusted by the process or yes. just didn't trust the Astros and really had no interest in talking to them on the last day. Broken to, process, to broken process, not just the MLB process, but a broken process on the Astros side. I th- yeah, I, think. I agree with you. I think we have to put the process aside for another podcast because this was not part of the this was not a fault of the process this was a broken negotiation between two parties that's what i mean and that's what i mean you can go scoreboard with the astros but you can also go with their process was suspect it just seems jj that there was not an acknowledgement that when you see that kid rosenthal story you're like wow we really better mend fences here that's not what happened and how can you let that you can't let that happen that the five minutes before the deadline you finally get to five million dollars and that and the, and the answer is no, and there's no counter. 
I, I just but again, and I and this process. this does feed your your calculate. You know, either you can call it calculated or you can call it the real reason for that is though is is that again what we've established is they decided whether it was that this is an opportunity for us to get Mac Marshall or whether it was we don't feel that Aiken is worth it to sign now with this elbow unless we get Mac Marshall. Right, but they the decided the injury. They, yes. or the, the reason they the couldn't risk. come back, the reason they couldn't have a $5 million offer on the table when the Rosenthal story came out and then go up from that is they couldn't go up from that and get Mac Marshall. And the best way I can put it is, is Mac Marshall is a fine player. But you don't blow up your draft for Mac Marshall. That's you exactly don't blow right. up your draft for Mac Marshall. They just did. And if you look back did. at history, the, the two number one guys who didn't sign in the past, and this was obviously ancient history compared to the money now, but Belcher and Goodwin, those negotiations never went anywhere. If you look at even like J.D. Drew when he didn't sign, those negotiations never really went anywhere. The only really comparable one to this is Matt Harrington. That's where the Rockies and Harrington were probably close on money at some point and should have gotten it done, and just the breakdown of the relationship of the negotiation made things fall apart. So really there are very few parallels to it, to this kind of thing where you're arguing over percentages of money not not huge chasms and here's one of will's points that i i haven't been able to really come up with a great example but how many times was that guy taken in the 10th round and later and signed to the giant bonus how often has those guys really worked out and i'm just looking at i was trying to come up with who's since the informal slotting process began in the early 2000s you know quote-unquote smart teams invest money later in the draft on guys who fall for signability. Who is the best example of that? Because one of the ones I can think of is Nick Adenhart, the late Nick Adenhart. Huh? He, he worked out. You know, he, was, he became what we thought he was going into the draft, and he had Tommy John surgery. And then he was on his way you know, to being a productive major league pitcher and then obviously he had the But even that's accident. an exception because that's Tommy John. That's an obvious reason to fall in the draft. I'm just talking about signability guys. Well, and then the thing is with uh, and that's my other problem with Aiken. What round was Will Middlebrooks? Pardon me? What round was Will Middlebrooks? He was like a seventh round pick. Okay, seventh, so he wasn't post tenth. But like one of my other arguments in, with this is it's an elbow. If it were a shoulder with Brady Aiken or a back or uh, something like that, chronic knee injury and maybe he needs microfracture surgery something like that okay but it's an elbow who doesn't have el- what pitchers don't have elbow surgery that all maybe all you're doing is increasing his risk of tommy john surgery from 99 to a 99.5 i mean which you know what i'm saying i mean it it feels really um petty and just displaced just irrational i can't think of another way to f- say it Obviously. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't feel uh, like it's r- rational to tie so much risk to the elbow when we've got a lot of history of a surgery that helps the elbow and that most pitchers have. Not most, but a lot of pitchers are having this surgery and coming back from it. It feels like you know one just went ninth overall. Jeff Hoffman just went ninth overall. He has less track record than Brady Aiken. He's not as good as Brady Aiken. He's not left-handed like Brady Aiken. He's three years older than Brady Aiken. He's had his Tommy John surgery already. And he's he just got three million dollars plus from the Blue Jays, 
So $5 million for Aiken, that seems lowball, frankly. I mean, I'm not saying he's twice as good as Jeff Hoffman, but I do understand he has more leverage. I, I, I think they put too much on the elbow risk, considering and, and that it's again, the elbow. Go a step further. It's Brady Aiken and Jacob Nix. Right. Because right. if you go to 6.5, because I, I do, as, as bad as the situation was, it seems very logical that if the Astros had called Aiken at any point you know, in this process and said, okay, we'll give you the original deal we agreed to, everything would have been cleared up. Would you all right. agree? And I think that's what you had to do at some point. And they didn't do it. Yeah. Again, $1.5 million is not – you can look at it. You can say, I mean, they're going to have – they should dominate next year's draft. They should. They should. Because they're going to have a twenty million dollars signing budget. So they should have done that, which will be like forty percent of their big league <laughs> payroll. <laughs> I mean, we're almost but, getting to Rick Reichert numbers but, here with but, the Astros okay, draft. But there's two things with that. One is is that next year's draft doesn't at this point does not look as good as last year's draft. Well, it's not on the college side. The high school side looks pretty good, and the right. high school side does look pretty good for next year's draft. Whether we'll have as much velocity is probably not likely, but the college side, you know, pretty iffy. Um, the high school side looks fairly robust, but but the the again really the other part though is is that at some point, and maybe their evaluation was no, it's worth taking that hit, but is it worth kicking the can down the road another year? To you know they get the number two pick, but and again there's also there is at least the slight risk. Because we haven't gotten into, let, I mean, I think we have to cover this. The Jacob Nix part of this is, in many ways, the worst part. Because I, he was a dude just randomly standing side of the road and got run over by this. Right. He, there, is, there is nothing good about what happened. Uh, because the other part of this is, if you want to talk about how the process is broken, what we have established now is that, hey... When they call you and they tell you, yes, we're going to take you in the fifth round, but we're going to give you a mil more than what, you know, or 1.2 mil more than what slot is, the translation of that is, is that, but do understand, this will immediately dissolve if we do not sign our first round pick. And you can't really sign this deal until we sign our first round pick. Yeah. I mean, I think the other part of that has to be, the, uh, if, if you're signing one of those kind of guys, don't tweet it, don't talk about it. And the advice, there has to be a veil, a cone of silence that has to descend on all this because Jacob Nix, more than likely, uh, the information that we're hearing is that people at UCLA, where both Nix and Aiken are committed, do not expect them to show up on campus. I think one of the reasons is they do not believe, or UCLA does not believe, that those players will be eligible. Because when you read the NCAA rules, it really looks like even just agreeing to terms is not uh, good enough to keep your vaunted, magical NCAA uh, amateur status, which we've established long ago is ridiculous. But those are their rules. And, and the, you know, the Astros are part of their cartel. The, NCAA, uh, the UCLA is part of the NCAA cartel. That cartel has its rules. So it looks like those two guys, uh, are, if they're going to play next year, they're probably going to have to play at junior college. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's certainly lesser than 
five million or one point five million. But I just think again, going back to Nix as an innocent bystander to the poison that was injected into this and the lack of trust between the Astros and the Aiken camp. But there is also the very slight chance that if the Players Association is able to file a grievance, if you want to talk about this really falling apart, and if it was agreed at that point that no, 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 they had agreed to the deal and you have to, the Astros have to sign Knicks for the amount that they agreed to. Right. If that, again, and I would put that, the chance of this all happening at very slim. Correct. But if that happened, then the Astros would not have a first-round pick next year. Right, or nor would they have the compensatory pick. They would lose their, if they had, if they were I'm forced. I'm they would have, they would, instead of having two in the top five, they would have zero. Correct. If they were forced to sign Knicks, they would be well over their bonus pool allotment by enough that they would lose two first-round picks. And I don't think it's unreasonable to think that the union will try to file a grievance. I mean, they did... They did one with J.D. Drew back in the 90s, so whether it would be successful or not is another question, but I, I think they, they could very well try. Uh, there, there's no other way to put it. If that happened and the Astros ended up suffering that penalty, that would be, when you say, then what's the That's case? That's what they at, call at a fireable point. offense. <laughs> you that is a catastrophic. <laughs> I mean, that is a, because that would be, that would be, a catastrophe of all catastrophes where you would come back and eventually would say, okay, so, again, I would put the likelihood of all this happening at very small, but if that all happened, That's, you essentially – That goes from disaster to – That goes to DEFCON 20. Right. You're way off the scale. You I can't ju- do that. I judge baseball news at many levels, but one of the, the top level is, is my wife interested in it? <laughs> <laughs> and she was interested in the Cowboy Monkey Rodeo story that we're going to have online next week. <laughs> and then last night, I mean, I was going to talk to her about the number one pick not signing, whether she wanted me to or not, just because, just Could because not. it is what it is. But she asked me a follow-up question about it this morning. So she actually is fascinated by this as well. So I think that just shows how compelling this is as a story. Now, obviously, for the parties involved, it's a disaster, but... As a journalist, it's fascinating. It is. It's fascinating, and it's pretty meaty. And uh, obviously, there are more developments to come. Will there be a grievance? Where will these players wind up playing in 2015? What do the Astros do? Uh, there's there's so much to come here. I mean, uh, all of a sudden, they're going to stop uh, having Aiken jerseys and start having a lot of A.J. Reed and Derek Fisher jerseys. <laughs> come on, guys. Don't don't forget to banking your whole draft uh, pitching-wise on Brock Dyshorn and who was – oh, and uh, – Daniel Mengden in his uh, fractured uh, vertebra. So, good job, good effort by uh, by the Astros. Just uh, just a disaster in my mind on on Friday, and just uh, not not a good look for anybody involved and some pretty innocent bystanders here, and and uh, Jacob Nix especially, and to an extent Brady Aiken as well. So, just just a disaster, JJ. Anything else? Uh, I mean, th- well, one thing I did want to touch on is is that we you hit on it. Like, I, I do think that. If either of them wanted to, if they wanted to go from one, uh, you know, battling against one kind of broken system to another, either Jacob Nix or uh, Aiken, if they wanted to, probably could play Division One college ball, but they would have to sue. And if you do that, I mean, we've seen that a lot of these NCAA rules don't hold – they don't really hold a lot of water in court because there's really no logical explanation for why they are that way. Um, Andy Oliver, you know, pretty much right. blew won up the, the agent rule the before. Yeah, he won the case, 
but then they bought them off so that also, they would the not. NCAA has so many other problems to deal with right now. I would be interested to see how big a stink they would even make about Aiken and Nix. I, I agree that, with you. I think it would be. I would like to see them try to go to UCLA just to see what happens. I agree. I, I would too, from the standpoint of I would just love because I think that could actually fix a lot of problems because if we actually got to a system where. Like the pre-draft combines. The problem right now is, is okay, how do you do that and get the players there? Because the minute that they're paid for by MLB, then you get into amateur issues and all that. But the other part of that, though, is, is that if you're UCLA, as awesome as it may sound to land Brady Aiken and Jacob Nix, surprisingly, at the you know signing deadline, it also would be... John, you know much more about this than I do, but... There's no way that they have 1.5 or whatever it is scholarships just sitting around waiting for Brady Aiken and Jacob Nix. You know what you probably would do? um, I mean, I haven't talked to Coach Savage about this, but I have talked to coaches in the past about this. And what you wind up doing a lot of times is that the players in their first year go on as low a scholarship as they can afford. Uh, I don't, you know, UCLA is a public school. I don't know what their tuition is these days. But you'd have those two players. On, right now, the NCAA legislation is it's 25% minimum. You'd have those guys on 25% their first year, then they'd be on a full ride the next year, that kind of thing. So over the course of three years would be a significant portion. But, yeah, it's not like they have full ride scholarships just sitting around, that's for sure. So um, it would be complicated. And plus, don't forget, UCLA also had several injured players this year, Kramer, Philia Snyder, Kevin Williams, I, I, I think he might be coming back for a, four, a fourth year. Um, they had at least two regulars who were injured and took medical and they, red shirts and were coming and they had back. A late round pick who also, they had another late-round pick who's a UCLA commit who didn't sign at the deadline. I forgot who it was. But. So, I mean, the point, yeah, so, yes, the point is you're exactly right. It would be a headache for UCLA. That said, it would be a headache they'd be very happy to deal with if they yes. were confident. They would go through it if they thought that Knicks and – Aiken would be eligible. So, but the headache becomes a lot worse if you get into that James Paxton type exactly. limbo, where exactly. you can't play them you because take... this is how the wonderful NCAA rules work. You couldn't play them even if they're not declared ineligible initially. Right. You necessarily couldn't play them because the NCAA can always come back later and say, "Hey, by the way, you got to forfeit your season." Right. That's that's exactly right. The James Paxton thing where they said. We're not saying he's ineligible. We're just saying don't play him. <laughs> and and they didn't play him, and he went to Indy Ball, and that was a college junior, although he was a 20-year-old junior at the time. But, yeah, uh, diff- very different for a couple of kids right out of high school. So, all right, JJ, good stuff. Uh, very complicated situation, and uh, thank you both for keep bringing me back from the emotional edge. I got uh, I get fired up over this, but it was it was historic yesterday and uh, did not something I did not think we would see in our lifetime. So... I didn't either. I thought we were done with that kind of thing. Just amazing. All right. So for J.J. Cooper and Will Lingo, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody.